We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Elephant Man on October 10th, 1980. It was written by Christopher DeVore, Eric Berggren, and David Lynch, based on the novel The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences by Sir Frederick Treves, and partly on the novel The Elephant Man, a Study in Human Dignity by Ashley Montague, directed by David Lynch, produced by Jonathan Sanger, with credited EP Stuart Kornfeld and uncredited EP Mel Brooks, and released by Paramount in the U.S. It says, you know, I read up about that, like Mel Brooks wanted his name, but it literally yeah. starts with Brooks Films. <laughs> right, but Brooks Films is different than Mel Brooks. Right, but you know what Brooks Films are. Well, at this time, people didn't. There were only three of them, and none of them had Mel Brooks involved in any way, other than paying for the movies. On August 5th, 1862, Joseph Carey Merrick was born, though he's often erroneously referred to as John, the name used by Treves in his novel. Well, but they used that name throughout the entire film. Right. Because that's what he was called, I assume, in life, because that's how he's referred to throughout Treves' novel. Oh, okay. But his birth certificate says that he's Joseph. Hmm. Of his parents' children, he actually lived the longest, his brother William having died of scarlet fever at the age of four, and his sister Marion dying of myelitis and seizures aged 23. The symptoms of Joseph's deformity were not apparent until the age of five. As he grew, his skin loosened and grayed, resembling the texture of an elephant's. His family blamed the symptoms on his mother Mary having been knocked over and frightened by a fairground elephant during her pregnancy. Merrick went his whole life believing this fabricated explanation for his condition. Oh, I was I was wondering about that. Like I kind of figured it was something that the, you know, the sideshow made up to just be, you know, to make it more of a lore, but they actually like he actually thought that was true. Apparently in the early part of the 20th century that was still like common medical knowledge that if a woman were to be uh, attacked or in some way frightened by an animal during her pregnancy that that would be an explanation for the child being having adverse conditions when he was born huh. a scientist in 2001 speculated that merrick may have suffered from a combination of neurofibromatosis type 1 and proteus syndrome his limp was actually caused by an injury and not his deformity he fell and injured his hip which went untreated and became infected his mother passed away shortly after the death of his younger brother but until then, they had a very close relationship. Um, I just want to point out that I had read a different article that was saying that it was very much not M- an NF1, the, the disease oh, okay. that he had, um, and that people who have NF1 are very upset by the fact that it is associated with him because their disease is actually a very common thing. It's like one in 3,000 oh, okay. uh, children are born with it. And, and the other disease, uh, Pro- Proteus. Proteus, is like one in a million chance of, of, yeah. of getting it and but i think there were symptoms of both things so he might not have looked like that because of the nf1 right i guess people people who have that now 
don't like the association because they, they everyone assumes that they have the elephant man disease and it's yeah. like well no it's the other thing that he had that you know ca- caused those deformities sure. this is a different disease yeah after school he tried to work but as his condition worsened he was less and less able to do most work merrick made a conscious decision to work in the business of human novelty exhibition unlike the proprietor in the film merrick's primary manager tom norman treated him rather well and they split the proceeds of the elephant man show which in a few weeks amounted for joseph to as much as a typical working family would make in a year so he did well yeah after he died parts of his body were preserved for medical science to study some internal organs were kept in jars and plaster casts were made of his head an arm and a foot although the organs were destroyed by german air raids during world war ii the casts survived Michael Jackson made multiple attempts to purchase Merrick's skeleton, which is still held by London Hospital Medical College. A what? St- can you do that? I'm pretty sure you can't buy human remains. <sighs> if you're Michael Jackson, maybe you can. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, they said no, so yeah, it didn't for happen. For the best. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, if you donate your body to science, I guess you could argue... If the money's going to future science? Yeah. If they've learned all they can from your skeleton? I mean, uh, Burke and Hare, those guys sold a lot of bodies, right? Well, I'm I'm just saying in the modern era, there are laws against selling remains, I think. Are there? Or is it organs specifically? Maybe it's organs. I mean, I guess I like, remember- Could you sell a mummy? I saw a video Didn't the, the other day about people buying human teeth, but those just fall out on their own. Like, <laughs> Didn't, uh, when they were making, like, Poltergeist and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they ordered a bunch of, like, bones from the they did. East yeah. Asia or something? Yes, because they were cheaper than the prop bones, and so they just bought... Bought ugh. real full skeletons. Ugh. I think it depends on what part of the world you're in and what kind of a billionaire you are. Um, if you're a crazy billionaire, you get to have bones if you want them. But not the elephant but man's But not bones. these ones. <laughs> a stop-motion animated skeleton of the elephant man does make an appearance dancing alongside Mr. Jackson in his music video for Leave Me Alone, though. Oh. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> no, that seems like bad taste. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so does buying a person's skeleton. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> in 1970, screenwriters Christopher DeVore and Eric Berggren were introduced to Ashley Montague's novel and optioned it. Producer Jonathan Sanger optioned the script from Devore and Berggren after receiving it from his babysitter, who was Devore's girlfriend <laughs> at the time. <laughs> this is the third film produced under the Brooks Films label after Fatso and Loose Shoes. What? And holy shit, is this an improvement over what? those two? What? I don't believe it. Yeah. Oh my god. Those films are like the very, very bottom of my list. And spoiler alert, this one is not... <laughs> Stuart Kornfeld was the producer of the inaugural film Fatso, which was written and directed by Mel Brooks' wife Anne Bancroft, who makes an appearance here. Brooks was convinced of Lynch's talent after a screening of Eraserhead on the Fox lot. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I was looking up his credits and I'm like, he had done a bunch of shorts, which I assume were probably, you know, in school or shortly At after. AFI, probably. Yeah, and then Eraserhead, which was... N- not a straightforward movie like this yeah. it wasn't you know it's 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 on the lynch scale of weird yeah um 
I, I don't know who would have, I guess it was Brooks that came to him and thought yep. that you can make a straightforward movie because I don't think I would have given him that chance. I would have been like, yeah, your stuff's a little out there. Yeah. I don't know if this is the right story for you. Right. But there's also elements of Eraserhead that are clear inspirations for stuff here. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that at all. I'm say, I mean, there are, there are moments in this film that go... They surreal. could be in the same universe for sure. For, yes, for sure. But it is it is a straightforward narrative. It is not twisty or unusual in any way. Yeah. Mel Brooks hired Lynch, who was working at the time as a roofer, to direct the film and That's had his amazing. own <laughs> Yeah. And he had his own name as the producer removed to ensure that it would be taken seriously. It was first offered to Terrence Malick though, who turned it down. Wait. I don't know if you've seen any Terrence Malick movies. Maybe The Badlands with I don't know Martin if I Sheen. Have. No, but the, I mean, I, I I know the name. I'm trying to yeah. Place um, it. Tree, Tree of, of Life, Life is a more no. recent one. Uh, here's an amusing little passage from Lynch on Lynch, a book of interviews with the director. Kornfeld recalled a meeting with Freddie Silverman of NBC, at which Brooks was hoping to raise several million dollars in pre-sale monies for the project. Freddie said, "Who is this David Lynch?" And Mel said. That just shows what a fucking idiot you are. <laughs> Kornfeld laughs when he remembers what happened when Silverman asked to read the script. So Mel says, what the fuck do you mean you let you read it? Are you going to tell me that you know more about what makes a successful motion picture than I do? I couldn't believe it. He wasn't going to give the guy anything. Brooks sustained this attitude right to the end, even when it came to Paramount Pictures, the film's distributor. Again, Kornfeld remembers the spark. When the film was finally shown to Paramount, Michael Eisner and Barry Diller were there. They said, gee, it's a great film, but we think you should get rid of the elephant at the beginning and the mother at the end. And Mel said, we are involved in a business venture. We screened the film for you to bring you up to date as to the status of that venture. Do not misconstrue this as our soliciting the input of raging primitives. <laughs> then, then he slammed the phone down. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wonderful. Because he was probably in a position to say, fuck you i'll take this movie elsewhere i don't yeah. give a shit if you're gonna do the deal because uh, he was confident enough in the product elephant man the film inspired bradley cooper to pursue acting and he played merrick in a recent stage play version in 2013 that did not employ the use of prosthetics the whole point of it was that people were just acting as though he sure. were mm -hmm. different the film was nominated for eight academy awards and won none of them Although it could be argued that the film and more specifically makeup supervisor and designer Christopher Tucker unofficially won the first Oscar for makeup. So there wasn't an Oscar for makeup? Correct. Okay. But this inspired them to give an Oscar for makeup because yes. this deserved it. Yeah, for sure. Feeling that the makeup technicians deserved to be rewarded for this movie, a letter of protest was sent to the Academy's Board of Governors to ask them to change their minds and give the movie a special award. The Academy refused, but in response to the outcry, they decided a year later to reward makeup artists with their own annual category, which was won the following year by Rick Baker for his work on An American Werewolf in London. The film's nominations included picture, actor, director, writing, art direction, costume design, editing, and music. The makeup was designed using actual molds from the Royal London Hospital's private museum. The Elephant Man makeup took 9 to 10 hours to apply each shoot day. Wow. 7 to 8 to put on and 2 hours to take off. As a result, John Hurt worked one day on, one day off for the duration of the production. That's amazing. That must have been a really long production schedule to yeah. accommodate that because he isn't he's in most of the scenes. Yeah, there's there's only a few scenes where he's not a part of them. During the production, he reportedly told his wife, I think they've finally managed to make me hate acting. Like the character, 
Hurt was forced to sleep sitting up to avoid destroying his makeup on stage. Lynch initially wanted Jack Nance for the lead role, but he was overruled by producers after seeing John Hurt's performance as Quentin Crisp in The Naked Civil Servant. A Broadway show with the same title was very popular during the film's production, and Brooks Films was sued by the show's producers, but they eventually settled. And there's a disclaimer at the end of the movie. Right, that they are not affiliated with each other. But I think the the argument of the case was that it's it's a historical figure. Yeah. It's it's the name of the book, which is it's it's a uh, what call it public domain. The book was public domain at the time. Yeah. As a result of the lawsuit, the title card at the end of the Elephant Man trailer reads, "Based upon the true story of John Merrick, known as the Elephant Man, and not upon the Broadway play of the same title or any other fictional account." Which I think is kind of throwing shade at the yeah. play version. That's like, this isn't made up. <laughs> not like that play. Don't go see it. Yeah, it's it's mostly made up. Don't bother. We open on a framed portrait of a woman and then push into the same woman's face in another shot. And we're crossfading from her eyes to a group of elephants passing left to right across the screen. Then we see the elephants approaching the screen and we fade to black as an elephant knocks a woman to the ground with its trunk and she screams on the ground this is like immediately screaming of david lynch yes yeah like i was like i'm watching twin peaks right now yeah right but then it very much goes back to a normal (laughs) non-lynchian film sure yeah uh until a dream sequence in the middle that feels very lynchy and then then at the end end, uh But she's just laying on the ground, throwing her head back and forth, screaming until we fade out and a puff of smoke fills the screen. And we cut to Sir Frederick Treves walking through circus grounds. All around him, sparks are flying, fireworks are exploding, and carnival barkers are peddling their their wares, their shows that they're doing. Curiosity lures him to a freak show after he watches a policeman duck through a door labeled No Entry. I guess a bobby. Are they called policemen? Can you call them policemen too? I don't know. Uh, it's also important to note that this is in black and white. Yes, that's true. Uh, so, uh, and I, I, I think that's you still have to get special permission to do that now. I mean, maybe. I mean, I mean, special permission from the studio. Like, yeah, you know, but make, in this case, the production movie. was Brooks Films, so yeah. he didn't need permission from anybody because it's Mel Brooks. He's he wanted the crew, the director's vision. I mean, I feel like. A, a studio would just do whatever's best for the picture. Like it'd be case by case basis. I, I have a hard time imagining any studio would be like, no black and white films. I mean, it is a, it is a conversation, you know, that, that they don't like that. And it's kind of funny because, you know, of the, of the five films nominated for best picture, this was one of two black and white films. Yeah. Yeah. Here is the whole thread about it here. Why did Mel Brooks need to get permission to film in black and white? So uh, it has to do with the the contract that they made with the studio. Oh, okay. Uh, for the, distribution? Uh, for, I guess, just for production. But I didn't think it was produced with a studio. I thought it was produced by, by, by Brooks Films. Right, but I imagine he wanted, because he was Mel Brooks, he could probably get some kind of early financing for a, like a... Or, oh, that's or, true. And or, I guess from Freddie Silverman did pitch in money eventually for it. So maybe NBC... He had to sell it to them, and it was it's probably one of those things. Let's like say you know we're going to be shooting this in black and white, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people will go, "No, we're not going to market a black and white film." Yeah. yeah, I suppose it was a more touchy subject back then than it probably would be now because films 
probably felt old and uh less timely when in yeah, black they were and like, white we don't want people to think that we can't afford to shoot in color mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and now it's like now it's no a, one thinks that. now it's a novelty yeah. and very much yeah. an artistic choice and, and that sort of thing like with, with young frankenstein it makes sense yeah because yeah. well and with this well, because it's also very much in the style of like a film from the 30s or 40s uh in terms of like the set design and mm-hmm. right and the stage work but we also we've had plenty of films set in different eras predating color film that yeah. were in color. And they, they talked airplane out of shooting black and white. That could have been another black and white movie this year. Following the Bobby, he passes a man blowing into a conch, a human fetus in a jar, and a bearded woman laughing hysterically. A well-to-do gentleman is trying to have this freak show condemned for the horror that is their elephant man exhibit. The man operating the freak show asks where else this man can make a living. How else will he live? Freaks are one thing. There's no objection to freaks, but this is entirely different. This is monstrous and should not be allowed. These officers will see to it that you're on your way as soon as possible. Good day. Sir Frederick Treves approaches the display but is ushered out by the police. The man who operates the show says, on the move again, to the elephant man through his cage. We cut to later where Dr. Treves is operating on a man who has just survived an industrial accident hopefully survived um i guess yeah, we, we don't, don't really know see the outcome, the outcome. <laughs> yeah. uh, but he's cauterizing like the hell yeah of and he says these machine accidents are happening more and more abominable things these machines you can't reason with them and the the guy is awake mm-hmm. he's like yeah. they're putting like a like an ether thing or something over his mouth to but it's not enough no oh God. and they, they're, they're literally tying him down and holding him tight to keep him from thrashing yeah During the operation, there's a knock at the door, and a messenger boy enters to tell Treves he found what he's looking for. He didn't see it himself, but he knows where it is. Also, no one's wearing masks, and Treves even yeah, they're going to get the coronavirus, (laughs) (laughs) coughing like onto the body while he's trying to compose himself. And I was like, oh my god! He's just wiping his hand on his chest. Also, uh, uh, amazing lighting in all this with uh, all the gas lights. Oh, it's so great! I uh, love it. Um, but man, those operating rooms must have been hot as hell. I'm sure. With just giant gas lights burning right above your head. And that was only even a thing for like a decade. Mm-hmm. That that you because you went from just using candlelights to having literally gas piped into every room of the house. So dangerous. And then replacing <laughs> all those tubes with wiring when electricity came through. But it's easy. You just run the wires through the tubes. There That's you go. where we got conduit. It's great. This uh, doesn't need to go in the podcast because it's gross. But um, I was having flashbacks in this moment to the last cesarean section because they do tie your hands down because during the C-section, like, oh, my, my you are awake. Itches. You are, you know, conscious for this. Yeah. And they don't want you getting on in there when they're working on it. So they tie your hands down. And I could feel my insides. They tell me that I'm not supposed to be able to feel my insides, but I could feel them doing things Wiggling to my around. organs and stuff like that. <laughs> and every time they would like, because they would like, you know, squeeze the uterus to get blood out. See, it's gross. Um, like <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated. I would, I would actually like be sick. Like I would, I would, I would end up throwing up. They had a little thing, and I would throw up in it when they would squeeze the uterus because I could feel it, and it was nauseating. Yeah. Um, and they're like, "That's really weird. Like, you could." You could tell when I'm That's doing so that. That's so weird. <laughs> just keep doing like, that. That was unusual, and I was just like, but like, what organ am I touching now? <laughs> but seriously, like when it's they were kidney. moving stuff around, like I was reacting, like I could feel it, and they're like, "That's 
usually people can't feel their internal organs. And I'm, so I'm having flashbacks them. as I'm watching this guy awake during surgery. It's yeah. freaking me out. It was, it was gross. And then they squeezed his uterus <laughs> and he vomited. <laughs> I did not know you had a serum. I've had two. Two out of three ain't bad. A fellow doctor asks what that was about. And he doesn't want to divulge for some reason. His coworker watches him cross a courtyard from an upstairs window, just like, hmm, I wonder what that was about. But this never really pays off. This We don't see much of this guy well, later in the film. Yeah, I, I'm assuming it's because they're trying to one-up each other with yeah. medical oddities. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They're having a freak-off. <laughs> it's better than a freak-out. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> I'd rather have a freak-out. Get your freak-off. Get your freak-off. No, don't do that. <laughs> stop 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 <laughs> because his genitals are completely unharmed we follow trees through several back alleys in search of the freak show's home base we can hear what sounds like running water and treves moves through what looks like an abandoned apartment building toward an elephant man banner hanging on the opposite end of the hall he lifts it to peek behind it but doesn't find anything i assume this is going to be like the elephant man showering <laughs> yeah. it's like what the fuck are you lifting this thing for it's my shower curtain put my banner down uh the man who operates the show enters behind him and treves asks are you the proprietor and the man says they're closed and tries to brush him off until treves offers to pay him handsomely for an opportunity to see the curiosity a private showing yeah the man takes treves money and refers to himself as the owner before leading him to the elephant man. The owner lights a small torch and launches into his spiel. Life is full of surprises. Consider the fate of this creature's poor mother. Struck down in the fourth month of her maternal condition by an elephant, a wild elephant, struck down on an uncharted African isle. Result, it's plain to see, ladies and gentlemen, the terrible elephant man the actual spiel went something like this ladies and gentlemen i would like to introduce mr joseph merrick the elephant man before doing so i ask you please to prepare yourselves brace yourselves up to witness one who is probably the most remarkable human being ever to draw the breath of life which is much less insulting (laughs) than what this guy's saying He goes on to mythologize that the elephant man's mother was struck down by an actual elephant on an uncharted African isle four months pregnant with him and that this man is the result of that accident. Treves is fascinated and even moved to tears by the sight of Merrick, the elephant man. Though IMDb credits this teardrop to two different things. One trivia point said that he was thinking about his father who was very sick at the time and another one said he stared into a bright light. So... (laughs) Um, whichever one you choose. You get to pick and choose your facts now. Welcome to 2020. (laughs) His face is elongated and his back is coated with lumpy masses and hair. Treves makes some kind of a deal with the proprietor to bring the elephant man to his offices tomorrow at 10 a.m. The man, who now shares his name, Bites, agrees to meet 
and insists cryptically that now more than money has changed hands between them as he pulls Treves closer and closer until Treves is able to break free of this handshake. We have a deal. We understand each other. More than money has changed hands. We understand each other completely, my friend. Yes, well, thank, thank you, Mr. Bites. Mm. The next morning... <laughs> The ele- yeah, it's just very imagining creepy. one of those Trump handshakes where he just like drags you in yeah. towards himself. Yanks him. <laughs> oh, it's like because now they're they're not just dealing in money; they're dealing in flesh between each other. But it's like, did he think it was prostitution? Did he think that's literally what he was asking for the oh, elephant man for? Really? I I think it was more like that. You you plan to use him as I'm using him. But it's like I wouldn't have thought that. I would have been like, he's a doctor. This is science. He intends to get knowledge from the guy. Like, I feel like this is early for that guy to have picked up. Oh, you could profit off of this, too. Like, it seems like the whole point of it is that I want to figure out how to treat this guy or diagnose what's wrong with him. Um, I don't know if he was thinking about him profiting off of him so much as, as Richard said, it's you are using him for your own benefit. Yeah, I don't know that that was clear yet, though. It was clear I mean, to Bites. <laughs> yeah, maybe Bites is just that that good a judge of character. Well, I mean, why else would he ask, you know, to pay him to bring him somewhere at a certain time? Because he wanted to study him and, and see if he could diagnose what was wrong and potentially help the guy. Mm. Maybe. Which is why I think it's weird that Bites is so like, yeah, sure, take him. That's great. I'll, yeah, I'll what send if him he over. Him? And it's like, what if he never comes back? Yeah. Like, th- like this, you're this, not a very knowledgeable man. Here. Like, you don't know that there isn't a cure out there, right? Yeah. But but also the moment he comes back later, he's pissed. Yeah. Well, he, I think he was gone for longer than they thought. The next morning, the elephant man, wearing a disguise of a hat with a hood draped over his face with eye holes cut out, is led through the lobby of the hospital. I think it's actually unusual. It's a single eye hole. Mm-hmm. But That's he true, has yeah. two what appear to be functioning eyes. Yeah, but why cut two hole when one do trick? <laughs> Well, I I would say so he could see better. <laughs> yeah, but this isn't built for comfort. This is uh this is just uh yeah, you can see where you're going. Now, I'm going to get mad at you if you trip on something. Now, I'm assuming that John Hurt is not in full makeup, but is wearing some kind of similarly shaped apparatus. Yes, I, I would for imagine most of this. Yeah. yeah, I would imagine he has some sort of like pull-on type mask whenever it's not needed to be full mm-hmm. prosthetic makeup. Yeah. The man accompanying him tells the woman at the front desk that they're here to see Mr. Treves. I guess he's not a doctor. He's just Mr. Treves. Well, but he is. He, he is. A, that's a, that's I, I mean, was... he's a surgeon, but nobody calls him Dr. Treves over the course of this whole movie. They mm. all say Mr. Treves. And, and even the head of the hospital is referred to as Mr. Yeah. Um, so maybe he's just very humble. Maybe they just don't refer to doctors as a t- maybe doctor isn't a title at the moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. because medical school didn't exist. Medical school was <laughs> called hospital. <laughs> Some in the hospital are already fascinated by his shape and others are already disgusted by the smell. Trees takes Merrick back to his office and tells the front desk that he is not to be disturbed. It takes a few tries to communicate with Mr. Merrick to follow him. Treves introduces himself to Merrick as a surgeon here at the hospital. He tells Merrick that he would like to examine him and perhaps learn from his disfigurement. He asks Merrick a series of questions, and he doesn't seem to get an answer on any of them other than just heavy breathing. Is your name John Merrick? Are you in pain? Are your parents dead? Suddenly, a harsh knock at the door, and his coworker Fox barges in. Not at all an accident. This is the guy that wanted to know where he was going yesterday. And he's like, oh, what have you got in there? 
and he presumes that it must be something pretty incredible for him to be so nervous about it. When he returns to his office, Treves finds Merrick cowering in the corner. He tells him that everything's all right and asks if he can examine him now. He asks him to remove his hat, please, and we fade to black just as Treves is gripping the hat himself, which I think it's interesting that we're spending so much of the beginning of the movie keeping the keeping his face a secret. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like Lynch is picking on us for wanting so desperately to see what his face looks like yeah and showing course. us that it's like this is oh see you're just as bad as everybody else that you desperately want to see what this guy looks like oh mm-hmm. yeah that's definitely what he's doing we cut immediately to treves presenting merrick as a specimen to an auditorium of medical professionals he discusses merrick's condition in a very callous and insulting manner gentlemen in the course of my profession i have come upon many lamentable deformities of the face due to injury or disease as well as mutilations and contortions of the body, depending upon like causes. But at no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. He draws their attention to the malformed skull, the useless right arm, and the extremely curved spine. And the perfect genitals. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, look at that magnificent junk, though. Uh, Merrick is instructed to turn around and reveal that 90% of his body is covered in these fibrous tumors. The audience is horrified and also fascinated. Treves also finds it necessary to inform these men of Merrick's completely unaffected genitals, at which point he instructs a pair of assistants to reveal the genitals to the crowd. <laughs> like, they literally, like, unstrap his underwear so that everyone can see his junk. And we're just seeing all of this silhouetted from behind a curtain, so. I love the the, the framing of this shot. Yeah. You know, again, it's not, it's it's our... We're having to fill it's in un- the blanks. It's our undesirable curiosity. Yeah. You know, it's like, but we want to we want to be in that audience too. Yeah. Bizarrely, Treves is applauded by the crowd after his presentation of this deformed individual. Fox and Treves watch as Merrick climbs into a horse and carriage to be returned to his owner. Fox says, you never mentioned his mental health. And Treves responds, Oh, he's an imbecile probably from birth. Man's a complete idiot. Pray to God he's an idiot. Evidently, Mr. Bites was not made aware of how long Merrick would be away, and upon his return, Bites has a breakdown, asking repeatedly, where have you been? What have you been doing? And vigorously caning Merrick. Mr. Bites' young assistant finds Treves at the hospital and says Merrick is in trouble. He has shallow breathing, and he leads Treves back to Merrick. At first, Bites blames Treves for this new health issue, and then switches to blame a fall, something he claims Merrick does often. What happened? He fell. He falls. But even as he makes the excuse, Treves sees Bites' young assistant eyeing the cane, and he knows exactly what happened here. Looks like he's had a very severe fall. <laughs> he's a clumsy soul. Never looks where he's going. Treves asks why Merrick is sleeping sitting up like that, and Bites explains that his head is so big that if he sleeps laying down, it would break his own neck and he would die, which was actually true of the real person. He insists merrick be returned to the hospital and when bites interrupts to say that this man is his whole livelihood treves replies he won't be worth much of a livelihood if he's dead now stop wasting my time i'm gonna fetch a cab but i'm pretty sure that the elephant man's remains were paraded around for a while after his death and maybe not completely worthless as he tries to leave bites grabs a hold of treves and says there are a lot of things i could do for you i move in the proper circles for this type of thing in fact, anything at all, if you take my meaning. Which I think just means 
that he's like all you can eat freaks basically like i i got the i got the 411 on I wasn't deformed sure people. if he was offering additional yeah deformities or if if here again he was offering some sort of prostitution yeah i don't know what he's saying back at the hospital treves escorts merrick to an isolation chamber at the highest floor of the building gilgood as what is his name car cargom yeah cargom very weird name but that's the real guy's name but that must be his last name. No, Carr is his first name. Gom is his last name. Really? Because they always called him Mr. Carr Gom. But it, I mean, I guess that's, you know, saying like Mr. Yeah, John polite. Merrick or yeah. something like that. But it just seems unusual to well, not at, just Well, at least use it's always name. separated. So I don't know. Well, yeah, it's, it was definitely two words. But people have two word last names. I, I figured he also had an additional first name. Maybe. I'm just going to call him Mr. Carr Gom or Mr. Gom probably every once in a while. Or actually, I'm just going to call him Gilgood because that's what I have in my notes. That's Gilgood? the actor. Oh, yeah. that's the actor. You don't want to just call him like Gami. Gami. Good old Gami. <laughs> Gilgood sees Treves bring Merrick in, and when he comes back with breakfast for Merrick, Gilgood lures him into his office. Treves pretends for some reason that the oatmeal is for him until Gilgood literally just grabs it out of his hands and gives it to a nurse and he says take this to the man upstairs <laughs> like i saw what you did and go ahead and bring this to the person i like how no nonsense this guy is yeah, yeah. uh the nurse expresses some reservation and treves assures her that he won't hurt you gilgood calls treves into his office for a chat gilgood asks why he's been so secretive with this patient and why he wasn't admitted properly when treves explains merrick's incurable deformity Gilgood reminds him that this hospital does not accept incurables, and Trees insists that an exception should be made for this rare deformity. I, I, that was an interesting th- idea to me that I had never really occurred to me that yeah. there was a time when uh, there wasn't a, such a thing as, I guess, hospice or, mm-hmm. um, you know, at least making people comfortable. That, well, I think that it comes down to a- like a finite staff and beds and it's like you want to help as many people as you can and if you can't help this guy at all oh i'm not i'm not saying that it it's not logical i'm just saying it it hadn't really occurred to me that a hospital would say we're you know you you are suffering but i am going to turn you away because there's nothing i can do for you And, and he does mention that there is an incurable disease hospital and uh you know treves is like oh well i'll look into that but in the meantime can he stick around yeah yeah, basically, so Gilgood suggests transferring the patient to a number of other hospitals, and Treves says, maybe you should meet him. Like, you should come and see him in person. Maybe it'll change your mind. And suddenly they hear the nurse screaming upstairs. Excuse me. Because she's being terrified by Merrick's deformity, which we're now seeing for the first time with the nurse. She opens the door and he turns, he's in the bed, like changing his clothes and he turns to face her and we see his face for the first time. But now, and moving forward, almost every time we see his face, it's plainly lit with bright lights. And so without the shadows of, you know, mystery to it, it's very straightforward and right away you realize how quickly the curiosity goes away. Once you've seen it, you're like, okay, I've seen it. I know what this guy's face looks like now. Yeah. And it's not, it's already not a novelty once you've seen it. But this nurse drops the oatmeal on the floor in her surprise. And we cut to Merrick sleeping that night. And he's startled awake by the chiming of the bell atop the hospital. 
I guess, would go off every hour. Yeah. That would be really obnoxious. I think you'd get used to it pretty quick. I remember I moved uh, Jeff into this house. Uh, he was moving, like, right when we got to Chico one time. And so we were helping him get into this new place. And it was... 10 feet 20 feet from the train tracks and they go through all night every night and the first night we just didn't sleep at all and by the third night we didn't even hear it anymore yeah (laughs) i mean i know you get used to things like traffic or train sounds i just um uh, he's so close to the cathedral there i feel like you would feel the vibrations it would shake you yeah well the the train shook us too yeah merrick looks at a small framed photo of his mother that he has in his room late at night An Irish guy with a cigar walks straight up to Merrick's room knowing full well that he's there. He offers Merrick a drink, and he tells him that they're going to be good friends. And he says that he has other friends that would like to meet him. We'll learn later that this is like a night watchman for the hotel. He's like a porter or something like that. The next morning, two women who look like they could be lepers are fighting in the hospital entry hall. Treves delivers breakfast to Merrick's room, only to find him collapsed beside his bed. Bites enters the hospital and is disgusted by the women fighting in the lobby on his way to Merrick's room. These aren't freaks. Yeah. One of the nurses tells Treves that the only way to get through to Merrick is with a good smack. Now don't you waste your time with him, sir. It's like talking to a brick wall. I don't, don't mean to be harsh, but it doesn't belong here. She asks what Treves expects to do for him to help him. After she leaves, Treves decides that he needs to be able to communicate with Merrick, and they have their first breakthrough when he tells Merrick to nod if he understands him, and Merrick nods. I feel like I would have picked a different way to move, Mm -hmm. because I wouldn't be so sure that this guy was capable of nodding. Or even if he was, it's just like, yes. It's not... Yeah, it's not it's not a subtle thing. It's just like, if I push my head forward, it will fall. Yeah. (laughs) Next, they move on to developing Merrick's ability to speak. He starts with a simple yes, and then Treves gets him to say the full sentence, hello, my name is John Merrick, which may not have been true. (laughs) It's a struggle, but he's able to say the words. Treves and Bites clash in the stairwell. Bites wants Merrick back, insisting that he was only on loan to be cured. Treves tells him that he misunderstood and accuses Bites of abuse. When Bites says that he'll bring the police back to the hospital, suddenly Gilgood appears at the top of the stairs and suggests, yeah, why don't you do that? You go to the police and you see see whose side they're going to be on, the hospital or the guy that's beating this thing with a cane. Yeah. Again, Cargom, the hero of the movie. Yeah. I think they'd like to hear both sides of this story. Treves thanks Gilgood for interfering, and in return, Gilgood expects to meet Merrick tomorrow at 2 p.m. sharp. He's like, oh, maybe we could do it in a few more days. I think uh, we might just need a little. He's like, yeah, 2 p.m. tomorrow. Like what I said. I was surprised that he even waited until tomorrow. It's just yeah. like, I think it's I like, should meet him. Right now. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Treve spends hours with Merrick teaching him sentences and scripture. When they meet with Gilgood, he regurgitates phrases that Treves has taught him, but eventually starts recycling them, and Gilgood catches on. He reuses. I feel much better now. And. Everybody's very kind. But his delivery of the very kind line is just heartbreaking. Like, it's just so sad because at the same time as he's kind of faking it to get through this conversation, he believes that too. Like, they have been kind to him. And so you can hear him, like, upset that he's lying, but also he's sad because they have been very kind and he wants to communicate that. And so it's it's just really devastating just the way he's saying it. As they leave the room, 
Merrick starts reciting Bible verses and Psalms, and Treves tells Gilgood, I, hold on, I didn't teach him that part. He's saying stuff that I didn't teach him. And for some reason, Gilgood believes him here. I know. Which I was like, what? I'm admitting that I made him yeah. memorize a bunch of stuff. But I, but this part, definitely I didn't do that part. Yeah. <laughs> and so they both go back into the room with him. And, he's, and he says, oh, how did you know that? That's the 23rd Psalm. And he says, oh, I used to read the Bible every day. And the 23rd Psalm is my favorite. It's very beautiful. So not only does he have like a whole bunch of the Bible memorized, but he can read apparently. Um, so he's much more intelligent than than Cargon was giving him credit for. When Treves meets with Gilgood in his office, Gilgood asks if he can begin to imagine what Merrick's life has been like. And without missing a beat, Treves just says, oh yeah, sure, I could picture that, no problem. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. yep, I basically got it. He's got a thing on his face. Yeah. <laughs> no. You big disgrace. Yeah. And, uh, and Gilgood's like, no, you, this, there's no way that you have any idea what he's been through. We cut to a fancy audience in a theater and later to an actress reading the paper backstage. It's an article about Merrick, and it says that despite his deformity, his intellect is intact. She seems very moved by this story. I should very much like to meet this gentleman. The scary Irish guy who busted into Merrick's hospital room that night reads the same article to a crowd of drunks at a bar, and after he finishes it, the man basically offers to sell tickets to see Merrick in person. He seems to work for the hospital in some capacity, and he expects to soon have more access to the patient than he does now. The man busts into Merrick's room one night while making out with a floozy, and he turns her head to see Merrick in bed, and she screams before running out of the building. A pair of nurses are talking about the process of caring for Mr. Merrick. They will be in charge of him now. Their last warning is that under no circumstances are mirrors allowed in this room which is a threat that we last heard in my brilliant career. (laughs) No more looking in mirrors. I have a plan. You never make me more than middling ugly. We'll see. But first of all, no more looking in mirrors. You're comparing. (laughs) They were doing that. They were literally, she was like, I'll never be more than middling ugly. Well, that may be true. But first of all, no more looking in mirrors. It's like, (laughs) you're just going to depress yourself. Treves enters and is impressed by Merrick's new suit. He invites him home for tea with his wife. Mrs. Treves is concentrating very hard on being polite when she meets Merrick, and as soon as she shakes his hand, he breaks down in tears because he's never been treated so kindly by a beautiful woman, and she offers to get them tea. After tea, he thanks them again for inviting him into their home. He asks about the pictures on their mantle and compliments the photographs of their family members. He shares with them the small photo of his mother. And then he wishes that his mother could see him now with such nice friends, He says he's tried so hard to be good, and Mrs. Treves is just sobbing here. She feels so bad for this person that this mild kindness has never been shown to him by anyone. And it's it's really heartbreaking. It absolutely is. Like you're I'm absolutely tearing up at this point in the film. I I I loved this scene, but this is uh this is probably one of the the bigger scenes in which this happens, but frequently I found in this film when we started to get into the real heart and emotion of what this man is going through and like having him connect with people we cut away that's true and and it it happens over and over and over again and I'm like why I mean it's it's a lovely movie and I love how much we're, we're 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 starting to see but I thought we could go so much deeper but it seems like an intentional choice to cut when we're finally starting to make connections between people Honestly, the pacing, I feel like, is the part of it that makes it feel the oldest. 
like the the style of the movie where we're cutting almost mid scene to mm-hmm. something else happening yeah. feels very 40s to me. And, I, and like I said, I think that all of this was very intentional, but um, but I kind of want to see the other version of this movie where where we really do focus on sort of unwrapping the psychology of what has been done to this man yeah and having him learn to become himself because he hasn't been allowed to be he's just been this monster that everybody makes him out to be and and learning to have relationships with people yeah no i agree i I could have done with more of these scenes that that end up sort of getting abbreviated that night at the hospital, Merrick fishes some cardboard out of the garbage and begins constructing a miniature model of the church out his window, though he can only see the very top of it, and so he's having to guess at what the rest of the church looks like, which he's. it seems like he's either just by nature an architect, or he must have seen this church mm-hmm. in his regular life, because it's it's a really amazing model of a church, if he's doing it all from the steeple. In the morning, his nurse is impressed with the accuracy of his model, he tells her that he wishes he could sleep like normal people and asks directly if there's any way to cure his deformity. Mr. Treves is quick to answer no. Later, Mr. Treves introduces the wealthy woman who read the article about Merrick backstage, and she's here with gifts and interested in meeting him. She gives him a framed photograph of herself, which he places in a position of honor next to his mother on the bedside table. I feel like it's a weird gift yeah. to yeah. bring. Uh, for this I mean, she situation. does. She does say, "I don't just go giving you know pictures of myself right. to anyone." Yeah. But yes, it is weird. I mean, she is an actress, also. So even if it does come across a little egotistical, it also feels like, yeah, that's who she is, though. And she would think this is important to him. Here's and my, it turns out it is. Here's my yeah. headshot. Yeah, um, exactly. I've, I've been told that I can play between seventeen <laughs> and twenty-five. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is incorrect. <laughs> <clears throat> Merrick asks her about the theater because he's never been, and she says he simply must. I was I was getting weird notes from her in this scene, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of got them a little bit from Mrs. Treves earlier where I was like, are they trying to imply that she's a little bit scared or disgusted by this person? And it turns out, in the case of Mrs. Treves, I feel like, no, there's not even a hint of that. Yeah. That she just is sympathetic to his yeah. condition. Mm-hmm. But here, she keeps, every time she looks at him, and then suddenly she'll just turn her eyes away. And I thought that that was happening on purpose, that she kept averting her gaze when she was trying to look at him. But then by the end of the scene, she's clearly not. Yeah. Yeah, I think she I think she does evolve over the course of the scene. Yeah, maybe that is what's happening. She tells him that the theater is romance, and this reminds her to give him the second gift, which is a book, Romeo and Juliet. I think it's... I, it must be like a complete works of Shakespeare because this is a thick book. Yes. Yeah. And he Roman, opens it to the center and Romeo and Juliet is a very short right. play. After every few sentences between them, the actress turns away as if trying to maintain her composure and he seems to notice when she is turning away from him too. He reads a short passage from the play and she follows with the next line and they go back and forth for a bit until he gets to some stage direction. Uh, and then it says they kiss. <laughs> he like turns the page because <laughs> he's too shy um and the actress moves closer to him to read the lines and she's reading them more and more intimately and then gives him a quick kiss on the cheek like is this a kissing book (laughs) (laughs) she tells him that you are not an elephant man at all Mm -hmm. no you're romeo a gathering of nurses read in the paper about mrs kendall that's the actress's visit to their patient 
and at the end of the article they suggest that Mr. Merrick may expect visits from the rest of London's high society, as Mrs. Kendall is something of a trendsetter. We cut to a husband and wife having tea with Merrick, and <laughs> the, the, the scene is played for laughs almost, um, but it's the two of them sitting there, and they've just gifted him this bejeweled walking stick, and he's very grateful, and he's like, oh, this is so much better than my other walking stick. I yeah. love it. <laughs> and uh, But the wife is very jittery and clearly just terrified by his condition yeah i mean this scene you know just bothered me because this one i think is the most we see almost treves turning him into that like trained monkey that is right like, look look what this man can do for you yeah but uh he he refreshes each of their teas and he's very forward with them and it seems like he's he's trying to teach them so that they can appreciate his condition better he admits that people are often scared by what they don't understand and it is hard to understand even for him because his mother was so beautiful and we see another extreme close-up of the eyes from her portrait as we cut away from this scene on his way to see mr merrick treves is stopped by the head nurse mother's head and she asks what purpose is being served by all these high society visitors she points out that several don't even bother to hide their disgust and they're just here to impress their friends and trees insists that it's good for him like i guess it might be helpful to his pride that he's meeting with people who are important and that they're treating him as an equal relatively right. well it's good for him to socialize in general in ways where he is not being made a spectacle but her point is that this is still him being made a, a spectacle in a different way right and this is also obviously not an authentic friendship with these people yeah i mean i think i think the problem is that they both have a point here that yeah. you know like he he does need to uh interact with people and socialize and and the problem is that you can't affect the way people are around him so yeah. for some people when they come in and meet him they are going to be that way they are going to be disgusted or they're going to be just there as a novelty yeah that night the creepy irish guy knocks on his window startling him merrick has trouble sleeping and we pan from him to his masked hat hanging on the wall and then we slowly push into the eye hole of the hat and we drop into a vision of the elephant man's dreams Men are working in a factory. This feels very Eraserhead to me, the men working in the factory. And uh, they step away from their machine to present him with a mirror and show him his own reflection. And then suddenly all the men are just beating him up, which is probably as much a dream as a memory of something that's happened to him in his past. Because he did try to work in factories as a younger man. It also seems weird to me, uh, these men rhythmically like moving yeah. a machine back and forth i was like isn't that what the machine is for i know i was thinking that too when <laughs> You're just watching holding this... on to it as it moves i was thinking that too when watching this scene i was like this is so ridiculous humans are so inefficient as a as a power source for something like the whole point is you have there's literally steam and stuff coming out of these things yeah. like <laughs> you should be powering this uh in a different way because yeah. humans are, are are not a good power source <laughs> tell that to the matrix robots it it uh, reminded me of Fritz Lang's Metropolis, yeah. where the guy takes over for this guy's oh, position. Where he's, he's literally just like, placing the clock hands. Yeah, turning just it, moving yeah. the clock's hands back and <laughs> yeah. forth. Whenever the light's up, he's got to move it to that light. Yeah. We cut to clouds in a stormy sky. Mrs. Treves finds Mr. Treves sitting in a chair wide awake in the middle of the night, and she asks him what's the matter, and he's starting to realize, based on what Mother's Head has said to him, mm -hmm. that he might not be any better than Mr. Bites because... He's still putting Merrick on a show and benefiting from it. 
His wife reminds him that Merrick appreciates what he's doing. At least he's not a victim now, or at least not a victim of physical abuse. Mr. Treves wants to know if he's a good man or a bad man, and we cut away. That's the end of that scene. We never know. We never find out. Spoiler alert, he's a piece of shit. The next day, during a meeting with the board, a Mr. Broadneck complains vehemently about Merrick's presence at the hospital. He condemns the freak hunting of young doctors looking to make names for themselves and demands Merrick's room be vacated for the purposes of curing someone more deserving, not for the caretaking of circus animals. Just as they're about to take a vote, Alexandra, Princess of Wales, enters the room. <laughs> what? Alexandra, so this would be sorry. the sister of the queen or the sister-in-law of the queen? I thought it was the niece of the queen. Could be the niece. I don't know. Niece of the queen. Niece of the queen. Doesn't she refer to the queen as her aunt? I don't know. I think so. Niece of the queen. It's <laughs> fun. Alexandra says that she's taken a great interest in Mr. Merrick's fate, as has the queen. She reads a message from the queen. To the governing committee, London Hospital. I would very much like to commend you for the charitable face you have shown Mr. John Merrick, the Elephant Man. It is laudable that you have provided one of England's most unfortunate sons with a safe and tranquil harbor, a home. For this immeasurable kindness, as well as the many other acts of mercy on behalf of the poor, of which Mr. Cargom has kept me informed, I gratefully thank you. Signed, Victoria. Alexandra says she is sure she can count on this committee to do the Christian thing when it comes to the vote. I believe she says Christian. Christian, sorry. <laughs> the committee votes unanimously to accept Merrick as a permanent patient of the hospital on the condition that he pay for himself. Essentially, by bringing in enough money from interested parties yeah. that he covers his own bill. Uh, luckily, this is before american healthcare, right <laughs> it's like so it's thirty thousand dollars a day <laughs> well this is not in america right that's true it's in london so they have socialized they have, medicine they have socialized medicine they're fine this guy'd be fine he'd still be alive <laughs> what that doesn't make sense gilgood mr treves and the head nurse all head to merrick's room to inform him of the committee's decision it feels weird, though, that they leave out the Queen's specific interest in his situation, which I feel like would have cheered him up a great deal, to know that the actual Queen of the United Kingdom mm -hmm. was like, hey, you leave him alone. Mr. Trees also right. presents... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm going to call her the daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law. Okay. Is, that, is that how royalty works? I mean, sure. She, she married the heir apparent, El, uh, Albert Edward. So that would be, I believe, the son of Victoria. Mr. Treves also presents him with the gift of a dressing case. Later we see Merrick has the contents of the dressing case spread all across the table in his room. We go back to that same bar and the scary Irishman is collecting money from more people who want to see the elephant man. On his way out of the bar, he's confronted by Mr. Bites, who wants to see Merrick himself. The Irish guy tells him if the price is right, he's welcome to join them. And then he, after he pays him, we see the Irishman lead a group of like 20 people through the back alley yeah. to this hospital. It's also weird that his room opens onto the alley. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that it wouldn't be like a locked right? door. <laughs> yeah, hospitals were different. Merrick is in his room wearing his nice suit and trying out his new combs and colognes 
when the Irishman suddenly busts in and he pushes Merrick up against the window for the inquiring faces of the crowd to see. Mr. Bites suggests they all get a closer look and they start filing into the room themselves. There's also some guy who's just violently kissing these two women. Yeah, and he seems to be getting off on seeing the elephant man while he does it. Mm -hmm. Or he thinks they're going to for some reason. But uh, yeah, he's got an arm over two different prostitutes or just women that he met at the bar and for some reason decides to make out with them while they're shrinking in disgust at the deformed man. The same awful guy tries to force his dates to kiss John Merrick against Merrick's will. The woman is screaming now as their faces are smashed against each other's. Merrick is thrown on his bed and the women are just piled on top of him laughing and drunk. More drunkards rush in to pour drinks into his mouth and down his suit. Merrick collapses on the floor where more drinks are poured into his open mouth. The Irishman finds a mirror and makes a joke of waving it in Merrick's face and he begins screaming at his own reflection. As the crowd lift him to carry him around the room, outside, someone notices the crowd in Merrick's room and looks very upset about it. The Irishman forces everyone out, but stays behind with Merrick. He sits him up so that he doesn't break his neck laying down and gives him a small portion of his earnings for the night. After the Irishman leaves, Mr. Bites reappears from the other room where he was hiding, and he approaches Merrick with his cane, and Merrick is just frozen, terrified. He can't move. In the morning, Merrick is gone from his room, and the man who saw the crowd from outside the window tells Mr. Treves what happened. So Mr. Treves goes to find the, the night watchman or the night porter or whatever they call this guy. It looks like he works in the boiler room or something. And he asks where John Merrick has gone. The guy claims not to know anyone named Mr. Bites, and he also says he doesn't know where Merrick went. They fight for a bit until Mother's Head the nurse comes in and knocks the guy unconscious with a box of something. He does admit to having been in there and mm -hmm. saying he was just having a bit of fun and he was making money off of him. So he yeah. he he admits to everything that he had done wrong. Right. I mean, he lies in so much as saying that like he was fine and it was just a bit of fun, but yeah. um you know, like he he fully admits the things that he did do. Yeah, but he also knew it was wrong before he did it. Oh, sure. But he fully deserves to get yeah. sacked and mm -hmm. you know whacked so <laughs> my note my note says the two fight for a bit until mother's head the head nurse knocks him out with a box the bad guy not mr treves that would be weird <laughs> uh yeah because uh the guy is like uh treves is telling him that he's fired and he says only mother's head can sack me and so she comes up yeah. behind him and whacks Whack. him over the head <laughs> mr treves heads back to the alley where he first found merrick but they've moved on I feel like it couldn't possibly be that hard to find him. Like, where where can they hide? I think they go to another country. Yeah. Okay. They do say that maybe he's on the continent. Yeah. We hear Gilgood tell him that leaving the hospital is not an option as his patients need him. We cut away to a freak show in France where Mr. Bites is leading the same presentation he was at the start of the film. Mr. Bites makes him stand on a pedestal for the show until he collapses to the floor, and then Mr. Bites just jabs him really hard a couple of times with his cane to urge him to stand, but it's no use. The crowd is disgusted by Mr. Bites and spit at him. Later, we see Mr. Bites drunk at a campfire, shouting to himself that Merrick is only infirmed to spite him. So when the crowd is jeering and, you know, spitting at him, I wasn't super clear that it was because they were disgusted at what Bites was doing, or if they were upset that they didn't get the show they paid for. Uh, oh, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, to me, at this point, 
the elephant man had become a bit of a minor celebrity mm. and to see him being like and mistreated. i think yeah. mistreated and and people in 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 viewed him with more of a sense of humanity mm. yeah. and just to see like this poor helpless person not a not not even just like a deformed person but just like this this poor guy is now just being beaten at the hand of this person yeah, yeah. who's who is the real creature here and that's that's a big part of it is every time like we're trying to decide like who the real monsters are and it's everybody around this guy yeah his child assistant tells him that merrick is legitimately sick and bites says let him die then and don't you think i'll bury him when he does and then an idea strikes that the elephant man is still worth something even in death and i was really worried he was just going to kill him yeah. right here he drags merrick out of the trailer and he puts him in a cage with a bunch of monkeys bites throws all of merrick's things on the ground and the child collects them in the night. Merrick wakes up to a group of dwarves, bearded women, giants, and Siamese twins offering to release him and get him away from Mr. Bites. They escort him to safety, and we see him board a ship to London wearing his hat and hooded mask combo. Almost as soon as Merrick gets to London, he's being followed by crowds of children asking why his head is so big and following him persistently re-asking the question. He's chased through a train station by children, and accidentally knocks over a young girl in his efforts to escape. Thankfully not onto the tracks or something terrible. I know. Yeah. I was worried about that when that uh, happened. Like, I was just, I was having, like, this moment of, like, Frankenstein's monster yeah. being the little girl. Um, I was like, oh, God, don't accidentally kill a girl. Yeah. A crowd surrounds him very quickly, thinking that he's done something wrong, and that's why he's being chased. And then they forcibly remove his mask once they get him cornered in a room and... Then, as soon as they get the mask off, they all make a path for him because they're terrified of what they see. He's backed up against a wall and he starts shouting to them. I am not an elephant! I am not an animal! I am a human being! And then he collapses to the floor just as the police are arriving and they return John to the hospital, thankfully. Well, I, I think it's uh, great that they filed the missing persons report. And the second that he's back in London, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, yes, here he is. Yep. Found him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't miss this guy. That's like what, like you said, if saying. he's in London, you should be able to find him that's right away. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He should be very recognizable. Yeah. Merrick and Treves are reunited. We see Mother's Head dressing Merrick's primary nurse, Nora, in a fancy gown loaned by Mrs. Kendall. She asks Mother Head if Mrs. Kendall knows that John is dying. Next, we see Mr. Treves dressing Merrick in a full tuxedo. It appears he's on his way to the theater. Treves apologizes again for what happened, and Merrick tells him not to be sorry because he's happy every hour of the day to know that he's loved. Merrick's in a balcony booth with the Princess of Wales, Mother's Head, Nora, Treves, and maybe Treves' wife, although I can't tell who else is in this booth. The play begins, and just Merrick's luck, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber's cats. <laughs> <laughs> wondering what the hell this was i don't know what this is (laughs) it's a very weird looking play but the first thing we see is like it it looks like a sid and marty croft style cat wander out (laughs) onto the stage uh despite the play's apparent shittiness people applaud when it ends (laughs) mrs kendall takes the stage when the curtains close to dedicate tonight's performance to her very good friend mr john merrick mr treves tells Merrick to stand because they would like to see him and I was worried this was going to trigger flashbacks to like the French freak show where yeah. he's like stand up stand up for everyone mm-hmm. the audience in the theater gives him a standing ovation back in Merrick's home I mean it's still 
mirroring the fact that right. he is a spectacle in a show, even in this fancy situation. Yeah. And I think it's not a coincidence that he was making him stand in both cases, that yeah. the point was supposed to be, this is the fancy version of what you saw earlier, yeah. mm-hmm. but at least no one's shoving him to the ground and jabbing him with a stick anymore. Yeah, that's true. I wish that that had been an actual, like it had been Romeo and Juliet or something that he had seen yeah. that was perhaps romantic in nature because i feel like this didn't do it (laughs) it looks really corny yeah (laughs) it looks like she gave him tickets to like a shitty weekend show for kids because (laughs) it looks really corny um i mean well he doesn't know he's ever been yeah i guess guess it's magical to him yeah but isn't that the problem is that they're just like oh you're you're an idiot you'll watch anything (laughs) well but you can't show him like the greatest like a huge amazing production because then everything he sees after that is gonna be garbage like he's gonna go to the theater a bunch after this maybe he's dying <laughs> well he could have another chance we don't know maybe not i'm sure we can find at least two good shows <laughs> <laughs> back in merrick's home mr treves wishes him a good night and is very pleased to hear that he enjoyed himself merrick turns to sign the corner of his completed cathedral model which is on display publicly you can go see it oh really yeah oh that's awesome he whispers to himself that it's finished and then he turns to look at an illustration on the wall of a person lying in bed. I don't know who put this here. That's just cruel. Like, <laughs> look what him. you can't do. <laughs> uh, and he decides to try it himself, despite the risk, or maybe as an intentional suicide. We cut to a close-up of Merrick sleeping in bed and pan across the portrait of Mrs. Kendall, his mother, and the model of the cathedral on our way to the window to his room. And we crossfade to stars floating very quickly through space. And the voiceover says, Never, oh never, nothing will die. The stream flows, the wind blows, the cloud fades, the heart beats. Space, we approach a circle that is filled with the face of his mother, who tells him, The end. So these are the two moments that they wanted to take off. Paramount thought that the shot at the end with the mother's face didn't matter, and the stuff at the beginning with the elephants. I think they're both kind of important to the story. In his real life, he likely never met actress Dame Madge Kendall, though her husband did meet with him a couple times, and he was invited to a play performance that she did. As in the film, Merrick did die of suffocation after a night of sleeping on his back, though it's believed he was simply experimenting with the position rather than committing intentional suicide. Our director here was David Lynch. This was Lynch's second feature film after Eraserhead, as we've said before. On the strength of this film, he was offered the director's chair for Return of the Jedi, which he turned down. It seems like an odd choice until you consider that his next film was Dune, which is currently being remade by Denis Villeneuve. I don't think it's a weird choice. I don't think... I think David Lynch knew what David Lynch movies were before anybody yeah. else did. And although this movie was pretty straightforward, he understood that he was going a different direction than a Return of the Jedi was. Right, but I would say that Return of the Jedi is not a complete 180 from Dune, the 1984 Dune. Yeah, I, I guess. I'm just saying I think that he understood he wasn't necessarily a commercial director. Yeah. I, that might have been more of it, that, that he wasn't interested in making the blockbuster that everyone was lining up for. Yeah. 
He also created the series Twin Peaks, obviously. If not for these films, he's probably best known for Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive. Uh, this is probably the most straightforward story we will ever get from Lynch, besides the straight story. Straight story. <laughs> uh, he played a man in a bowler cap chasing Merrick through the train station at the film's climax. I thought I saw him <laughs> in there, but I'm like, ah. <laughs> well, we've also seen him earlier this year mm-hmm. because he was in Heartbeat, where he played an artist in the gallery where the lead characters decide they're all moving to California. Also, all that artwork was his, right? Yep, that's correct. Uh, and he was also nominated for Best Director for this film. Writer Christopher DeVore, he also wrote Francis, starring Jessica Lange, and the screenplay for the Mel Gibson Hamlet. He was nominated for an Oscar for this. Remember, none of these people won their Oscars, but lots of people in this cast nominated. Uh, the other writer, Eric Berggren, was nominated also for this screenplay and wrote Francis with DeVore. DP Freddie Francis directed Trog and <laughs> the 72 Tales from the Crypt. He was the DP for The French Lieutenant's Woman next year. He also was the DP for Dune, Return to Oz, Uncredited, Glory, and The 91 Cape Fear, as well as The Straight Story. Editor Anne V. Coates was the editor for Lawrence of Arabia. She also edited the 74 Murder on the Orient Express, Masters of the Universe, What About Bob, Chaplin, Congo, Striptease, Aaron Brockovich, and lastly, Fifty Shades of Grey. Same (laughs) editor as Lawrence of Arabia. Yep. She was nominated for an Oscar for this and for four other titles on the way to finally getting an honorary Oscar. The music here was from John Morris. He's a regular collaborator of Mel Brooks's. He was a conductor on The Producers, The Twelve Chairs, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety. He composed the soundtracks for History of the World Part 1, Yellowbeard, Johnny Dangerously, Clue, Dirty Dancing, and Spaceballs. Um, so I liked the music a lot in yeah. this but i don't know if it really quite fit it tonally the whole way through like it it seemed it it was an enjoyable soundtrack but it was it felt a little off for the time period interesting i i don't know if i noticed that but he was also a composer earlier this year for in god we trust and he composed the theme song for coach <laughs> the tv series <laughs> coach he was also nominated for an oscar for this and for blazing saddles anthony hopkins played frederick treves He has an Oscar for Hannibal Lecter from the Silence of the Lambs films. He's also Corky and Fats in the movie Magic. He plays Van Helsing in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He plays Ludlow in Legends of the Fall. He plays Nixon in Nixon. He's John Quincy Adams in Amistad. And he's Odin in the MCU. Of the four times he's played a doctor, this is the only one that, as far as we know, didn't eat humans. Because he's played (laughs) Hannibal Lecter three times. John Hurt played John Merrick. He was nominated for an Oscar for lead actor for this. He was also nominated for Midnight Express. He plays Kane in Alien. He plays Control in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. He's Ollivander in the Harry Potter universe. He's Professor Broom in the Hellboy films. And he's probably best known as Professor Oxley in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, God. Knowledge was their treasure. Yeah. (laughs) What about uh, V for Vendetta? That was a good one. Yeah. It's no Crystal Skull. Actually, I, cannot finish *Beef for Vendetta*. <laughs> I remember the first time I I saw John Hurt and anything was probably the um, the parody of the alien scene. No, no, no! It was uh, the Jim Henson um, storytellers. Oh, okay. 
Oh, right. Because yeah. he's, the, he's the actual storyteller. Yeah, he's the yeah. storyteller at the beginning. I remember just loving this guy and then realizing later that I'm like, oh, this is the same guy as all these other things yeah. that I've seen. And, and you did mention History of the World, right? Because that's another For Mel- John Hurt? No, I didn't. For Mel Brooks, because it's another Mel Brooks connection. Yes, yeah. Um, but I also, my one of my favorite John Hurts is when Steve Buscemi was hosting Saturday Night Live and they do this <laughs> random sketch of Alice in Wonderland <laughs> where it's the mad tea party. Yeah. And for some reason, John Hurt is the Marsh Hare. And <laughs> just see, that just seems right. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> and but Steve Buscemi as the Mad Hatter keeps like talking about these really obscene things. Like they're all, you know, one of them's like, I wear socks on my hands. It's like, I put cigars out on my penis. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Now I have to look this up. Oh, you haven't seen it? No. I, I know this sketch. It's great. <laughs> Anne Bancroft was Mrs. Kendall here. Uh, she obviously wrote, directed, and starred in Fatso for Brooks Films earlier this year. She won an Oscar for playing Annie Sullivan in The Miracle Worker. She was also nominated for Best Actress in a Lead Role for Pumpkin Eater, The Turning Point, Agnes of God, and her most celebrated role as Mrs. Robinson in Mike Nichols' The Graduate. Gilgood was not a fan of her performance. Gilgood thought... Bancroft to be quite beautiful but quite unsuited for the role. Mrs. Kendall would be turning somersaults in her grave. Gilgood was in a unique position to make this claim, having worked with the actual Kendall as a young man on stage. John Gilgood was Cargom. He plays Hobson in Arthur. He's Beddoes in Murder on the Orient Express. He's Lord Irwin in Gandhi. In 98, he appeared as King Constant in the Merlin miniseries and also the same year as Merlin in the Quest for Camelot. I love the Merlin miniseries. It's good stuff. I have a strange, fond spot in my heart for that one. It's just a Sam Neill-shaped uh, yeah. hole. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you know. I, I just I always just feel bad for was it Miranda Richardson having to do that voice throughout I the whole thing. I love it, though. I know you don't. <laughs> I, I love like, that. Oh, God, that voice. <laughs> Sounds like motel hell to me. We had him earlier this year as Nerva in Caligula, and he'll be back as Dr. Iso in The Formula later this year. And next year, we'll see a lot of him in Arthur, Chariots of Fire, Lion of the Winter, and Sphinx. John Gilgood is in Sphinx. Yeah. Uh, Wendy Hiller played Mother's Head. She also appeared with Gilgood in Murder on the Orient Express. She won an Oscar for Supporting Actress for Separate Tables in 58, and she was previously nominated for the lead role in Pygmalion in 38 and a supporting role in 67's A Man for All Seasons. Freddie Jones played Bites. He'll be back for Lynch's next film, Dune, as Thufur Hawat. He plays Yinir. Yinir. <laughs> Yinir. Yinir, the old one. Yinir in Krull. Dr. Joseph Wanless in Firestarter, and Mr. Coriander in NeverEnding Story 3, taking over for the other guy that played Mr. Coriander there earlier. Was third yeah. one? <laughs> yeah, that's the one with Jack Black. Yeah. Uh, I also, because uh, I was re- recently watching the uh, Jim Caviezel Count of Monte Cristo. Oh, okay. And I was watching, I was like, that old man is Freddie Jones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also played Sandy Thomas for 632 episodes of a soap opera called Emmerdale. And he's the father of actor Toby Jones, Mm -hmm. who played Truman Capote in Infamous and Arnim Zola in the MCU. Michael Elphick played the Night Porter. He's Pasha in Gorky Park, and he plays Jake in With Nail and I. Dexter Fletcher plays Bites Boy. That's the kid who is working with the proprietor of the freak show. Mm -hmm. Also plays a kid in The Long Good Friday. He plays Cody in Layer Cake and Cody in Kick-Ass. 
He's the voice of Gargoyle Reggie in Sherlock Gnomes, and lately he's made quite a name for himself behind the camera, directing Eddie the Eagle, Rocket Man, and he's currently in pre-production on the third Sherlock Holmes film. Yeah. He's directing that. He looks like uh, Sherlock Holmes in his IMDb sure. picture yeah. right now. <laughs> uh, Claire Davenport played Fat Lady. She also plays Fat Dancer in Return of the Jedi. Frederick Treves. Frederick Treves played Alderman. If the name sounds familiar, it's because Anthony Hopkins is playing his great uncle in this film. Huh. William Morgan Shepard. Yeah. Was the man in the pub. He is an old man in the pub who once asks, hey, well, let's go right now. And yeah. he goes, well, no, no. The first customer that he potentially yeah. gets. And then later he's like really drunk and the guy like pushes him down into his seat. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's Dr. Zito. Yes. He's uh, he's a Klingon commander in Star Trek VI on Discovered Country. He's Merit in The Prestige. He's Captain Witwicky, ancestor of Shia LaBeouf in the first Transformers <laughs> film. And he's Dr. Zito in a couple episodes of MacGyver. Real great episodes. He's a crazy serial killer, but he's a genius and potentially a Nazi. Kathleen Byron played Lady Waddington. She's old Mrs. Ryan in Saving Private Ryan, the one who lost all those kids. She's also Sister Ruth in Black Narcissus and Mrs. Goddard in Emma. Kenny Baker played the plumed dwarf we had him earlier this year as r2d2 and empire strikes back and also most r2d2 appearances <laughs> uh, he's also fidget in time bandits and we'll see him again later this year as a dwarf in flash gordon Stuart craig was the uh set decorator for the film um he has three oscars one for gandhi in 83 one for dangerous liaisons in 89 and one for the English Patient in 1997, but he's been nominated a bunch of times. He worked on, it looks like, all the Harry Potter movies and the Fantastic Beasts follow-ups. Mm -hmm. He worked on the 98 Avengers, which doesn't have any of oh. your favorite superheroes in it. Well, he was also the production designer on Saturn 3. Oh, was he really? Okay, that's great. And he also worked on Chaplin and uh, Greystoke. Saturn 3 looks like that was his first one. Mm -hmm. So that must have been because... He was hired to replace the guy who replaced uh, John Barry when he left. Right. But you loved the production design on Saturn 3. Oh, oh yeah. I did. It was wonderful. Yeah. It was really great. But yeah, I really like this movie. I like the feel of it. I like the emotion of it. The performances are amazing. I think John Hurt really knocked it out of the park as this character because he plays him so perfectly sympathetically that he's like just the politest sweetest little guy and he just he's been shit on his whole life by everybody yeah and uh it's just the some of the line deliveries are just devastating though everyone's been very kind he's just so sad yeah this is this was a great movie um i definitely give it a thumbs up i had never seen it before yeah, so it's a i thumbs was up for me really enjoying it the whole way through um surprised that i had never seen it before i hadn't really heard much about it i mean i knew of the historical figure right of of the elephant man john merrick and or joseph merrick and uh but this this movie was uh was great and i'm i'm glad i got to see it yeah i think it's definitely the most accessible david lynch movie uh i i, I mean i would argue about the straight story but the straight story is i think the straight story is a harder sell on yeah. a regular person like what's it about oh this old guy drives a tractor what else <laughs> happens he meets people yeah but this one it's like oh yeah it's the life story of this guy right, with this right, tragic right. uh birth defect but that it's a 
a very straightforward story. Uh, I also had never seen this before. Yeah. Um, I was I was familiar with it as well, mostly from David Lynch's filmography. Right. Uh, just like oh, he directed the Alpha Man. Uh, but uh, just one of those things I never got around to. Uh, even though, again, also knowing that it was produced by Mel Brooks, right, and that it was nominated for Best Picture, like all these things about it, it just never, just never got there. Yeah. Uh, so I was very glad to have watched it. Uh, definitely a thumbs up from me. Uh, it's it's heartbreaking and tragic and a little weird with the Lynchian stuff. And but uh, I also don't feel like he overplays his hand. No, not at all. Um, he he gets he gets his like his little stuff in there. And Mel Brooks obviously was fine with it being in there. Yeah. Well, Letterboxd, Richard, what are you thinking? Um, I have this very high. Uh, I'm going to put it at number 17. Okay. Which is just below Breaker Morant, uh, just above Caddyshack. I feel like that's weird. <laughs> that, <laughs> that No, that makes sense. They're basically three of the same movie. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I was much more into Breaker Morant than I was into this, but... Um, I respect this movie a little more than I respect Caddyshack. Yeah, <laughs> but I really fair. enjoy that's Caddyshack. I, I, I know it seems weird to put this right up against a comedy, um, but uh, it is it is in front of it. So yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Jess, what do you think in Letterboxd? I also have it very high. I have it at number two. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, yeah, I loved this movie. It was great. I I mean I I don't think I would change a thing aside from uh maybe you know letting those emotional scenes play out a little bit longer yeah, but some breathing room it's um it, it's not that the movie needed to be longer i just i i liked those scenes i wanted more of it yeah um but aside from that i i can't fault this movie the acting was amazing the cinematography was beautiful the, the script was great the the makeup was astonishing like this this movie was fantastic yep. what, what did it muscle out ah uh, this uh, unknown film called The Empire Strikes Back. Ah. <laughs> uh, so it's The Shining is number one still on my list. Uh, so this is number two and just above Empire. But uh, I feel a little bit sad because it has pushed the ninth configuration out of my top five. Yeah. I am also sad about my top five because I'm pushing the island out of it, which I love. But The Elephant Man gets third place for me. Everything you said. I, I love everything about the film. I think it looks great. I think the performances are phenomenal and the script is great and everything's really wonderful about it. I'm, I'm glad that this came together because, you know, just based on the information and the pitch, like this wouldn't have been made yeah. by a lot of people. I, I cannot believe that. I mean, I, I, I guess maybe it was just destiny that that David Lynch was going to be given the chance to make these films that that somebody could recognize his you know brilliant ability as a filmmaker yeah. this early on. It just if you had shown this to me and said where was this in this filmmaker's career, I would have put it yeah. well into somebody's career. I'm like this is a film that is without flaw and is hard to believe that it could be made you know right off the bat yeah i feel like we haven't actually talked enough about the actual makeup job christopher tucker was the makeup artist here and this work is phenomenal there was never a moment where i was like able to see serious like seams in the makeup yeah like even the hobbit the makeup looked like fake well that's just because that whole movie looked fake yeah they shot it in 60 frames per second like the but (laughs) The modern makeup in that movie didn't look 
as good yeah. as this, you know, 40 year old yeah. makeup. But no, I also feel flawless. like it's, it's really important to the execution that this be a believable, f- like facial yeah. apparatus mm-hmm. that this all needs to sell a hundred percent. And the way that he talks even looks like this is how you would talk with this, with this growth. Yeah. It's uh, just really phenomenal work. And in every shot, it's perfectly lit everywhere. So there's no part of it that you can't see. There's no like, like you said, the seams are invisible, mm-hmm. but it's not because they're hiding them strategically. There just aren't seams, which is why it took nine hours to put on every day. Yeah. But it really looks great. And it's it's pretty authentic to what the guy looked like. But I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Whereas I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through patreon.com slash vintage video podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Private Benjamin, which IMDb describes like so. A sheltered young high society woman joins the United States Army on a whim and finds herself in a more difficult situation than she ever expected. We leave you now with the trailer for Private Benjamin. I was a skinny, frightened lad, no more than 17. The sorriest excuse for a man that you have ever seen. But now I am a thornbird and as proud as I can be. Colonel Thornbush played a man. This ring is a symbol that you are my husband. This ring is a symbol that you are my husband. I want to give you two a little something for mother and me. Just to bring you a little extra happiness. This is Judy Benjamin. That's for the future, not Lord and Taylor. All her life, she got everything she ever wanted. And a few things she didn't. Uh, I did join the army, but I joined a different army. Uh, I joined the one with the condos and the private rooms. (laughs) No, really, my my, my recruiter, Jim Ballard, told me that... I don't care, I don't care what your lousy recruiter told you, Benjamin. Now, I'm telling you, there is no other army. Excuse me, sir. Is green the only color these comments? Come on, move it, Benjamin. I don't want to see you stop running unless you collapse. Faint or puke. Personally, I think you've gone temporarily insane. That's what we told everyone. You said that you'd, uh, you'd had a collapse and, and uh, you were in a mental home. People think I'm in a mental home? Mm. I want to wear my sandals and I, w- I want to go out to lunch. I want to be normal again. I just can't believe that you were in this army. <laughs> well, if I knew you better, I'd show you my dog tags. How much better? Glory, glory, I'll be falling through the sky. Glory, glory, I am not afraid to die. Glory, glory, I'm as proud as I can be. Colonel Thornbush made a man out of me. Glory, glory, I'll be Goldie falling Hon through is the Private sky. Benjamin. Glory, glory, I am not afraid to die. Glory, glory.
as proud as I can be. Colonel Thornbush made a man.